Hello, and welcome to the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group, coming to you from Washington, D.C. and beyond. I'm Raka Banerjee. And I'm Paul Blake. In today's show, it's called The Just Transition. But what is it, and why is it so controversial? Our warming world needs to wean itself away from coal, but how can this be achieved, taking into account jobs and communities? We also have to be very sensitive that these are communities that have been dependent on their livelihoods and their identities for generations, and now we're asking them to reimagine, in fact, what their entire community is going to look like. We hear from India. You create a nurturing economy, generate greener livelihoods, and that is what exactly is just transition. And how just transitions can lead to new, inclusive, and sustainable economies. Sort of a whole slew of jobs that will be needed in that renewable energy space. You know, a lot of these coal mining jobs are taken up by people who aren't youth, and then youth are struggling to find some alternative. That's all coming up over the next few minutes here on the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group. So, Raka, before we turn to our guests, can you share some data to help us understand the context? So, for example, what are the trends with coal production in recent years? Is it declining due to the increasing focus on renewable energy sources? Has it plateaued? Is it going up? Like, what's the the situation? Yeah, so it might seem surprising, but actually on a global level, coal-based energy production is going up and has been going up steadily for the last 40 years. Uh, in fact, it's the single biggest source of fuel for electricity worldwide. So that yes, that is surprising. I would have thought it would be going down, kind of given the focus yeah, right? on yeah. climate change and, <laughs> exactly. and all of that. Yeah. So going up for decades, what explains this increase? Well, it's basically due to demand in the industrializing world. So across industrializing economies, there's been huge increases in electricity consumption. So that's not surprising. So that has resulted in greater dependence on coal. Um, Per capita, electricity consumption has actually more than doubled since 1990 in low-income countries. So I'm assuming it's it's not the same picture everywhere, though, right? It's it's clear that some countries are reducing their coal production, I I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there are fewer large coal producers at play right now. In fact, it's actually just six countries that supply four-fifths of the world's coal consumption every year. Can we say who those are? Yeah, so the number one producer is China. It accounts for about half of the both global coal production and coal consumption. And then after that, it's India, the U.S., Indonesia, Australia, and Russia. And on consumption, coal dependence tends to decline as country incomes go up. So if you're looking at high-income countries or even upper-middle-income countries, there's been a reduction in coal intensity. And that's coming from a combination of things, right? There's an increasing shift in sustainable energy sources, right? We're moving more to that in higher income countries. And also those countries tend to be more based on services as opposed to manufacturing and industry, which are big users of products derived from coal. So that's what's known as, I don't know if you've heard the term structural transformation, right? You're seeing jobs shifting from low productivity primary sectors to industry and then eventually to skilled services and incomes rise in tandem. So in other words, kind of as the composition of the economy changes, coal is needed less as you move up that that kind of income ladder. Exactly. 
so where things stand now in terms of coal production and consumption, it seems like it'll continue to change as we're just talking about economies grow and develop. How does that affect the the people themselves working in the coal sector? And, you know, just how many people are we talking about there that that will be kind of directly impacted by the transition? Well, it's two different things, actually. The people directly impacted is is broader. But if we're just talking about the number of people directly involved in coal mining itself, it's actually not a huge number. It's it's about 4.7 million globally. And even within those major coal producing countries that I mentioned earlier, it, it still accounts for a pretty small share of total employment. And that number is declining, even though coal production has been going up, even though we're producing more coal there are fewer jobs. In the last decade, overall number of coal mining jobs has declined by 2 million. Wow. And I, and I guess that the countries that have the most people employed in coal mining are the same as, as you mentioned before? Well, China's still at the top. They have about 3.2 million jobs in coal. That's as of 2018. And that's actually more than twice all of the other countries combined. So if you but then, add up all the other countries... And then double it. That's that's the number of jobs. In More than double it. That's that's right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, the list doesn't track the production um, evenly. So India is next after that. Um, they have more than 400,000 direct mining jobs. Um, just to be clear, those are jobs like in the mines themselves. Right. And then mm-hmm. Indonesia is around 240,000. Russia at 150,000. And then the U.S. and Australia each only have about 50,000 people employed in the sector. And you were kind of given us some definitions there. But when you say coal mining jobs, I'm guessing there are a lot of other people whose employment is tied to coal, even if they're not in the mines themselves. Yeah, no, exactly. Coal value chains are actually really long, right? So when we're looking at the transition away from coal, it might be just 4.7 million direct jobs, but it's a lot more than that. We're talking about, you know, local economies that are dependent on the earnings of coal mine workers. We're talking about the the well-being and social capital of those communities. And we're even talking about like local finances and regional governments and their fiscal solvency, right? All of that is is involved. Wow. I mean, it, as ever, as all the topics we talk about, this complicated, but thanks for breaking it down so much. It's going to be useful when we, uh, when we talk to uh, our colleagues here in a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. We just talked about how coal is still the world's dominant and, in fact, most carbon-intensive energy source, and that coal-producing countries have a big challenge ahead to phase it out. A great example of this is India. So as the world's second largest producer, India has a huge task when it comes to moving away from coal, which employs many workers. And a lot of those are in the informal sector who struggle to find work elsewhere. At the same time, India has pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2070 and source half of its energy from renewable sources by 2030. And it's those job opportunities created by renewable energy which can impact many rural and poor communities. Our producer, Sarah Treener, found out more. It's early evening in Fangli village, Gujarat, India. Temple bells drown out the bells around the necks of cattle and the sun is starting to set. Until recently, the setting sun would mean darkness for the villagers here, apart from candles or lamps. Work would have to stop. But many are now owners of solar panels, following a project led by Sewa, the self-employed Women's Association, which represents millions of Indian women in the informal sector. 
let's hear from one of them, who now owns and can maintain her solar panels. My name is Santak Ben. I've got three kids. They used to go to school and used to get into trouble from school and come home. Because when they had homework to do, they'd have to do it by candlelight. And if it was windy, the light would go out. So they couldn't do it. And they'd go to school and the teacher would tell them off. When we got solar, we could finally see. We felt like there was light on our soul. We had cows and we could milk them more often. And soon they started producing more milk. We went from five litres to 10 to 15. For us, the sun became like gold. For so many in rural, off-grid villages like these, earning a living has been a challenge. Job prospects have been very limited for mothers like Santok Ben and for the next generation. But investment and training has meant opportunities have opened up. Let's hear more. I'm Reema Nanavati. I work at the Self-Employed Women's Association, SEVA. The need is to make the transition a just transition. How do the rural communities, especially the women's need, the poor informal sector women's need, workers' needs are also addressed when the country is transitioning. What alternatives could be there for the workers who are working currently maybe in the coal mines or in the energy and power sector or in the transmission lines? So, you know, what are the alternatives which are also designed and worked out while the country is transitioning? I asked Reema about her vision for India's inclusive just transition. So for SEVA members, I think just transition has to be inclusive. Um, it has to lead to newer livelihood opportunities for the youth. Uh, we are all committed to building uh, and creating cleaner skies. So how can every woman and her in her community uh, work towards you know building a kind of an environment which leads to cleaner soil, cleaner air, clean water, and therefore leading to cleaner skies? And I think this in itself will generate ample green livelihoods for the women. So that is how you create a nurturing economy. You generate greener livelihoods. And that is what exactly is just transition. Let's go back to Fangli village and hear a little more. I'm Lucky Ben. In our village, the 35 houses had a big problem with water, but we now operate a well and a pump and we all have clean water. It also means that our relatives can call us. We can call our kids, we can charge our phones. It means we can work. Before, we used to have to go and physically leave messages with people. Back in Fangli, it might be getting dark, but lights will be going on, homework will be done, cows milked, phones charged, business will be arranged, and futures planned. Thanks so much to Sarah, Rima, and Sewa for that report. Well, joining me here in Washington, D.C., we have Elizabeth Rupert Bulmer, lead economist at the Social Protection and Jobs Global Practice here at the World Bank, and Rachel Perks, a senior mining specialist with the Energy and Extractives Global Practice at the World Bank. Welcome both. Let's start with the big picture. 
What do we mean when we talk about just transition? It's a phrase that the World Bank uses, but can you just give a little context? What does it actually mean? Sure, thanks. Um, the definition really has evolved over time, I would say. I, it, it emerged as a fairly narrow definition applying to coal mine workers in the context of closing coal mines and what would be a fair transition for those coal mine workers. But now we the definitions really change in two ways. One is it uh, applies more broadly than coal mining. We could apply it to sort of green transition, broader transition issues. And then second is that it's not just the coal mining workers we care about, but also other workers that will be affected and the communities around the mines. So really having a, a just transition for all of those affected, including you know environmental justice concerns as well. And and Rachel, can you can you uh, give us a little background on how central is the transition away from coal to fighting climate change? Yeah, thanks, Raka. I mean, it's it's actually pretty central. If we look at it from purely an emissions perspective, the burning of coal is the single largest contributor to GHG emissions. So we really believe that if we can move the needle on reducing coal consumption, we can certainly make significant inroads in air quality and other important environmental and wellness indicators. But at the same time, the transition away from coal is really central to the entire climate change agenda in general because it's so central to people's lives, whether through heating, electricity, manufacturing of goods and metals, or jobs. And if we can demonstrate to the general population that coal phase down can be done in a way that is just, it provides a real litmus test for a number of other seemingly hard to abate sectors or climate change topics. And sticking with you, Rachel, it's clear that this is hugely important. As you said, coal is the, the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, but it's not as straightforward as just turning off coal or stopping using it, right? What, why is this so controversial for, for some people? No, absolutely, Paul. I mean, one of the the biggest differences is that today, the phase-down agenda is not being driven by economic imperatives. I mean, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when we were entering some of the hardest coal phase-down agendas, it was because uh, the economics of coal was starting to no longer make sense. We had the introduction of gas. We had mechanization in the mines. And all of these things provided the imperative to actually phasing down and changing the way that coal was being both produced and consumed. But today, we're asking countries to phase down coal because of climate change imperatives. And this makes a much more complicated and controversial agenda because there's a lot of interests that are involved in that. We see on the one hand, you know, the youth who have a very strong desire to see a different planet for future generations. And they have very strong opinions, unlike youth of the past, about the way they want this world to look and the way that they want to live in that world. And yet at the same time, we have jobs, we have industry, all of these things that are so intimately tied to the coal agenda. And we really haven't found, I think, a platform where all of these interests can come and speak about these challenges together. And so the dialogue at a global level, at a national level, is so disjointed that it makes the topic of conversation really tough. And it sounds like there's a lot of problems to overcome, um, but trying to look for a silver lining here, where are you seeing progress made? You know, are there certain countries or parts of the world where you're, you're seeing progress made? 
In general, I think both Elizabeth and I would agree that policy incentives is like one of the first key things to making progress possible. And I think you can look, you know, nowhere else in the world has provided that kind of a policy framework than the European Union and the Green Deal, which has a very specific mechanism and financing attached to transition. And so in terms of progress, in many ways, that's where we see it, because the incentives for countries to uh, phase down their coal sectors are clear. Another area where I think you're seeing a lot of progress is in places like the United States, where there's a lot of groundswell of bottom-up movement uh, in coal mining communities who are trying to rewrite their futures. And so these are two, I think, very good examples, very different examples. And of course, I see Elizabeth is giving a bit of a look to me. So let's see, Elizabeth, what do you think? I mean, it's gonna say, and, it, and we'll hand back to Rock in a second, but, but while we're on this topic, I mean, it, it's not as simple about closing down coal mines, right? I mean, what's the impact as you see it? Not at all. It's certainly not easy. Um, I would say also in terms of the, the European countries, they are really taking on the lessons learned from the phase down in, in Poland, the major um, downsizing of the coal sector in the late 90s and by early 2000. Um, they tried a lot of different on the on the economic local economic impact side and the job side. They uh, had developed a lot of active labor market policies, income support, voluntary severance. So uh, uh, integrated packages. They were on a voluntary basis. So they really implemented it in a very textbook right way. What we would think is the right way to do it, and yet it was still really difficult. This is in Poland. This is in Poland. So it introduced. So a lot of the older workers ended up um, taking a package and then exiting the labor force. But that meant that the local communities kind of lost their economic base because everyone just left the labor force, and that sort of contributed to more out migration. So it was a really hard in some of those communities' cases to recover, and it's you know 10, 20 years on. So if I'm understanding correctly, it it in some ways worked for the individual, but on the macro level, it, it sort of fell apart. Correct. And that's why on the policy side, it is so complex because it's not just labor policies. It's not just social protection policies. There's also governance policies. There's a decision making at both the local and the regional level. Some of these were the lessons that were learned in the U.S. Appalachia region, which generally aren't really positive lessons because a lot of those communities sort of are declined in, in a big way. But the ones that sort of um, were able to become, remain viable and become more viable, had a different economic impetus to them. Um, in one case, there was it was a college town. In one case, they built a, a prison. But around those, um, that sort of economic infrastructure, there was planning at the local and the regional and the state and the national level and resources that came in to support that transition. And that's what we really need to see in the countries that are uh, attacking transition now. And try to influence those second and third order effects. Correct. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Raka? And yeah, Rachel, would you like to jump in on that too? Yeah. I mean, when we, when we look at the issue of, you know, coal phase down, it's not just about closing the mines, as Elizabeth said. I mean, as we sort of highlighted in our 2018 flagship report, um, closing down the mines is actually the easiest bit. The hardest bit is all of the planning that Elizabeth is alluding to. And in some ways, you know, we face a lot of pressures because of the acceleration of the climate change agenda in general and countries really trying to play catch up on um, some really tough decisions because we're talking about, in, in essence, the entire structural sort of adjustment of entire economies. 
Um, and I think also one of the things that I've noted in all of the work we've been doing, whether it was meeting with unions, coal miner unions in Greece or in Poland or talking to women in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you know, in all of these places, there's such a strong identity tied to coal mining or being an energy producing community that there's a lot of psychological transition that has to take place and people have to be brought along in this journey. And we don't think so much about how to deal with that as we do the technicalities of closing mines, doing regional planning, you know, uh, repurposing the lands. But we also have to be very sensitive that these are communities that have been dependent on their livelihoods and their identities for generations. And now we're asking them to reimagine, in fact, what their entire community is going to look like. Absolutely. Yeah. And Elizabeth, there are real opportunities here for countries as well, right? Um, we just heard earlier from women in India who are being trained to maintain solar panels who previously were finding it really difficult to find work. And now their kids can study and hopefully go on to find good jobs. They can increase their productivity. So could these transitions also help create new livelihoods and kind of expand these opportunities for people? Yes, absolutely. Um, the renewable energy sector is sort of the obvious um, uh, companion to closing down coal mines is, is shifting to cleaner energy. And a lot of those jobs could be for, for um, solar PV installation, for example, operations and maintenance, so sort of a whole slew of jobs that will be needed in that renewable energy space that don't necessarily require very high skills. That's the good thing about it is that they require some technical skill upgrading, but it's fairly accessible to um, workers along the, the sort of skill spectrum. So including workers at the lower end of the skill spectrum, including women, as you mentioned, or even youth. You know, a lot of these coal mining jobs are um, taken up by people who aren't youth, and then youth are struggling to find some alternative. So um, that's one aspect where there will be, and we anticipate there will be uh, new job opportunities. The other more immediate, more short-term job opportunities will be related to the actual um, closing of the mines, the remediation that needs to take place on the mining lands themselves, and then hopefully the repurposing. And a lot of those jobs will be, A, they'll be labor-intensive, B, there'll be a lot of sort of construction-type jobs, um, and those jobs could be for the mine workers themselves. So um, even though the mine is closing, there might be three-year, two-year, three-year job just fixing the mining lands and preparing it for repurposing. Is there any other historical perspective you can share here? Countries have been dealing you know, with this situation for decades. Many European countries have closed down pits in the, in the 80s and 90s. Are there any other lessons that, that you know, we should have in mind today as we continue this work? Happy to share some lessons that we drew from our global coal jobs report that came out earlier this year. Um, one is that, and so we did deep dives on five countries, but two historical countries. So on Poland and the U.S. Appalachia region. Um, the main thing is transition takes a really long time. It can take decades. So what we're trying to do as the World Bank is shorten that time frame. And hopefully it takes five years, maybe 10 years, but let's, you know, let's shorten it so it's not decades. We don't, and then we avoid this complete dislocation at the, at the local economic level. I mentioned doing the comprehensive approach is quite important in terms of the planning at different levels of government. Making sure that the um, programs, active labor market programs, social protection programs are already online and uh, geared up to receive an influx, potential influx of, of dismissed workers. Um, 
Yeah, and then um, complementary policies to encourage local economic diversification. Super important. Rachel, you want to jump in on that? Do you have historical perspective you want to share? Yeah, so so Elizabeth touched on a number of them. When we were doing our 2018 report, we looked at sort of trying to uh, order the universe of lessons, and, and we essentially drilled them down to 11. I'm not going to talk about some of those that Elizabeth has already highlighted. I want to talk about two in particular. The first, stakeholder engagement. I continue to be so surprised every time we enter a new um, project or engagement with a for the, for the layperson, what what do we mean Sorry. by stakeholder engagement? No, I mean what what do we mean? Is that going and talking to these communities? Is that it's yes, in some ways, but it's more than just you know one off consultations. It's really about building a, a sustained process where people in the community, and this could be anyone. It could be a, a union worker. It could be a local government official. It could be a local business person. Anti-poverty uh, could be environmental groups, yeah. uh, of other civil society organizations. Anyone who has a stake. Anyone who, exactly. who, who may have a stake is to create the structures, but also the dialogue for people to be sharing their, their views. I think this was one of the biggest lessons that we learned back in the 80s and 90s was just that, you know, this was very top-down level planning. Um, these were negotiations that were done, often closed doors between the heads of unions and governments. And then when it came down to actually affecting the transition, these communities in which the actions were taking place had really not been consulted or involved. And we see time and time again, that this leads to slow uptake of efforts or some of the more disastrous negative consequences that Elizabeth talked about. And so we spend a lot of time mapping out stakeholders in the community with government, trying to figure out where the categories of concerns lie the most. What types of information do people expect to receive when? And helping governments to come up with a clear plan around this so that when they walk into those meetings, they may not have all the answers, but hopefully they have 80 to 90 percent of them. And this puts then the entire process off on a really good foot as opposed to being a very sort of adversarial or, or conflict-prone type of discussion. I think the second other lesson I wanted to come to, and this is super important for us as a practice who are concerned with mining is the issue of land repurposing. Um, as, as Elizabeth was highlighting, you know, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, so much of the concern, rightly so, was for the future of coal mine workers, thermal power plant workers. And at the end of the day, very large budgets that had been set aside for that. But often very little um, thinking about beyond simply shutting the doors of the mines, what were people going to do with those lands afterwards? And I was really struck the first time I ever went to Poland in, uh, I think it was 2019, when municipality after municipality in these coal mining towns were saying, we want you know the, the assistance of the World Bank to help us to repurpose these former coal mining lands that are still sitting derelict because it presents such a huge capital to us, but it, it, in its present state, we can't attract investors. And so land has become a really important part of our framework. I also think that um, even though there's 
pretty wide global commitment on the need to phase down coal, taking those early steps is painful. So governments don't want to do it, right? Even if they're completely committed, they don't want to rush into it. So whereas the current crisis may be giving us a little bit of pause, it's also allowing time to uh, do that upstage planning. But also, um, you know, there's no way to get to that medium term 2028 or 2040 if you don't take the steps now. So Mm -hmm. we don't really have a luxury of kicking the can down the road too far. No, we don't. In fact, Elizabeth, because the the acceleration, I mean, we were already panicking ourselves back in 2020, 2019. And and now with the um, current sort of pause in some ways, I mean, it only means that the acceleration is going to have to intensify even further to bring down those targets. So if anything, we are going to have to work even harder to support our client countries when we come out of this present sort of energy security crisis. That was a a fascinating discussion. Uh, Thank you so much to Elizabeth Rupert Bulmer and Rachel Perks joining me here in Washington, D.C. Of course, Rock is down the line. But thank you so much for coming into the studio. It's very nice to have you guys here in person. Thanks Thanks for for having us. It's great. That's all for this episode. It's a lot to take in. I hope hope you enjoyed it. We learned a lot. Hope you did too. Indeed. As ever, your comments and questions are very much welcome. Please email us at thedevelopmentpodcast at worldbank.org. From me, Paul Blake. And me, Rock of Energy. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>